So can we start here together? You need to be led and you need to be delivered. Here's the good news. Jesus wouldn't teach us to pray those things if God wasn't able to do those things. Amen? You need to be led. You need to be delivered. Here's how temptation is going to work in your life. Remember, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Amen? You don't face a kind of temptation that Jesus didn't face, and he never succumbed to temptation. How about this? 1 John chapter 2. All that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I'm going to quote this one more time. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Here's what's in the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. How many temptations did Jesus face in the wilderness? Three. One was the lust of the eyes. All the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus refused, trusted God. Lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread. In other words, put a physical appetite over and above a spiritual appetite. Jesus resisted, trusted the Lord, quoted scripture, right? Fought off the temptation. And then pride of life, throw yourself off the temple. The angels will catch you and you'll make such an entry into Jerusalem. Well, Jesus said, I'm not going to enter Jerusalem in that kind of show-off way. I'm going to ride a donkey and I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be crucified, not for my sin, but for the sins of others. There is not one temptation Jesus faced that he ever succumbed to. Have you ever gotten directions from somebody who's never been to where they're saying you should go? It's tricky, isn't it? Jesus can lead you out of temptation because he knows where he's going. If you've got an outline there together, we're going to follow along. Um, man, uh, just a banner over your life. If you just trust this, God's not holding out from you. God's not withholding from you. God's not limiting you. God desires for you to have an abundant life. That old ancient lie goes all the way back to the garden that your life could somehow be better if you took the reins, didn't submit to the authority of God, and just went your own way. Friends, that's not a way to live. That's the way to ruin your life and a whole lot of other people's, by the way. So in Matthew chapter 6, we get here to the end of the Lord's Prayer, and one of the desires is that we would be led out of temptation. Well, I told you last week I've been doing a little history reading I just found this part fascinating in this book, uh, Dead Wake. I just want to read a little section to you because I find it it's uh, kind of a spiritual uh, metaphor. This book is about the sinking of the Lusitania. It's in May 1917. And uh, there's this guy named Charles. I won't go into his full name. You'll just, just trust that his name's Charles, right? So the torpedo has struck. And in the moments after, it's pretty important what you choose to do. Would you agree with that, right? Uh, here's what the book says. So this guy, Charles, he put on his life jacket and then began to help others. But these were a new style of life jackets. If worn properly, they were effective in keeping even an oversized man afloat comfortably on his back. But Laureate, well, that's his name, Charles Laureate, saw that nearly everyone around him had put the jackets on incorrectly. The shipping firm had not yet established a policy of having passengers try on jackets at the start of the voyage, right? That's a big problem, isn't it? It's a big problem to have life jackets, but people put them on incorrectly. In fact, they're putting them on in a way not that's going to hold their head above water. It's actually going to force their heads below water. That's one big problem. Here's problem number two. The captain 
began to tell people, stay where you are, everything's going to be all right. One person pipes up and says, sir, where did you get your information? He says, just trust me, everything's going to be all right. The remark, one of the witnesses says, was greeted with cheers, and I noticed many people who had been endeavoring to get a place in the lifeboats turned away in apparent contentment. That's two big problems, isn't it? Number one, I'm not putting my life jacket on correctly. And then number two, the captain of the ship is going around telling people, everything's going to be all right. That's why I'm, I'm grateful that the Bible is honest with us. You live in a world that is fallen. It is sinking, if you want to think of it that way. Romans chapter 8. God has subjected the world to futility. Not willingly, but in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. So number one, it is a fallen world. And number two, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer as a life jacket, but we want to put it on correctly. Amen? Because there is hope in the gospel, but the gospel can be misapplied if we're not careful. Friends, you, you can have a marker in your life knowing you're headed in the right direction if more and more you're leaving behind temptation and being delivered from, from evil. The Bible's message to us is not you just need to try harder and do better. We studied this from Titus chapter 3 last week. There's something wrong inside of us, so just sort of external behavior modification is not going to cut it. If you could be freed from sin by stopping sinning, you would have done it, but you can't. I can't. We need somebody to save us, to, to rescue us. So here we are in Matthew chapter 6. Deliver us from temptation. So what does that mean? What is temptation? You might think of it this way. Temptation is anything that leads my heart away from loving God supremely. Temptation is anything that leads my heart away from loving God supremely. And it's best understood in just the context of the passage In other words, verse 13, lead us not into temptation. Temptation is anything that would lead us to not hallow the name of the Father above all names. Amen? Temptation is anything that would lead us to want to build our kingdom, have our will above God's will. Temptation is anything that would lead you to not be content with the daily provision of bread that God gives you. Temptation would be saying, I don't have any debts that need to be forgiven, much less going to forgive the debts of other people. So temptation is desiring my own kingdom and wanting my own will. Because long before there are any sinful behaviors, there are sinful desires, right? It's not this we need to stop doing things. It's we need to stop being a certain way. To say we just want to change our behavior, well, that's putting the life jacket on upside down. We need God's help with this. We can't do this on our own. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Good news is God can do it. Amen? Regeneration and renewal, restoration, salvation, those are the things God can do. So in your life right now, are are you being renewed unto deeper and deeper joy in the Lord and zeal for his name and his mission in the world? That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. So let's... Just think through together some common temptations that we face. So if you've got an outline, we'll start there. The most common temptations we face. What is it in your life that would lead you to not hallow God's name? 
You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just listen to this passage. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So in other words, that helps us. If you think you're a kind of a special case, you're not, by God's grace, just receive this. You're not a special case. It's not a special series of circumstances and events that have led to you not being able to be let out of temptation. Because God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what are the most common? He just said, you don't face any temptation except that which is common to other people. So let's think for a moment, what are those common temptations? Paul Tripp in his book, Reactivity, his his latest book that I've been reading, lists lists a number of places that we often face temptation, and I found his description very helpful, so passing that along to, to, to you. Often temptation comes first for a desire for attention. A desire for attention. We're often led away from the heart of God because the attention, or to put it another way, opinions of other people become more important than the will of God pretty common, isn't it? It's a common temptation. We're here in the gospel of Matthew. Just look in verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. A little phrase, in order to be seen by others. It's powerful, isn't it? It's a powerful effect on your life. Again, that was one of the temptations Jesus faced over here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, the devil quotes scripture too, right? So that's not necessarily the hallmark of somebody who's led by the Holy Spirit. Pharisees knew a lot and quoted a lot of scripture. But here's the temptation. Jesus, go to the highest point in Jerusalem and throw yourself off and everybody will see the angels. And it'll just be a spectacle. It'll it'll be the headline of headlines. But you remember how Jesus does enter Jerusalem, don't you? Not carried by angels. He's, He's carried on a donkey, right? The most humble of entrances. Man, it's 2022. Social media runs on the power for the desire of attention, doesn't it? How many likes? How many clicks? How many whatever? Let me ask you maybe this way. The most followed people on Instagram. I mean, we're talking about people with tens of millions of followers. Do you you believe that they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or if you follow the direction they're saying to go, that's going to lead to an abundant life. But, but, but the truth of the matter is, whether you have 50 million followers or five, we all crave attention. What's the danger of that? Why does that lead to temptation? Because you'll often do things that you wouldn't otherwise do on the basis of getting attention from other people. We've all been there. And, and when you start to live for the attention of your name, you can't also live for the attention of his name. So therefore, life begins about you receiving glory instead of him. 
Well, another desire we goes deep in us is the, is the desire for power. Hey, y'all, there's power in getting the last word, isn't there? You know, you wrestle with that. And we have a discussion and a debate. Just got to get the last word in. Just got to get the last. I already said it, word in. There's power, right, in a witty response, in a takedown. In a, too, too, often, too often we think, and I've, and I've heard this on a couple of occasions recently, so I, I want to I talk about it for a moment, that there's power in Jesus going into the temple and clearing it out, right? I mean, flipping the tables. But, but what was going on then? There was a worship of God that was not in line with the character of God. That's what was going on there. But I also want you to consider that that Jesus who turns over tables is the same Jesus who washes feet, right? So we don't want to be a people who claim one without the other. It's the same Jesus who ministers to the sick and the hurting and the dying. It's the same Jesus that goes to the cross. So we don't get to imitate him one way if we're not willing to imitate him in the other ways. He's the Jesus who seeks the Father in private. He's the Jesus who prays when nobody else is around. He's the Jesus who loves his, his enemies. He's the only one ultimately who can be trusted with power. Here, here's the interesting part. He's the only one ultimately who has power, and he's the only one who ultimately can be trusted with power because everybody else, when they get power, they sort of leverage the power for their own benefit. Jesus has power, and he's leveraged it for your benefit. That's what makes him unlike anyone else. He led out of having to have the last word, having to have to be in control in the room, having to call the shots. Man, when you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, you know the one who calls the shots. We started the service that way. My counsel shall stand. So if that's true, I get to relax a little bit, don't I? I get to say, I don't have to grab for power. I'm trusting the one who has all authority. As a matter of fact, if you trust that all authority has been given to him, your life's going to be about the Great Commission. That's what he says at the end of Matthew. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, there's the desire for attention. There's the desire for power. There's the desire for acceptance. It's a powerful one, too. It's fascinating the way sin works. We, we want to be in charge and accepted at the same time. That's a complicated dynamic, by the way, right? We all want to belong. We all want to find a group that we can belong to. We just want to be in charge of it once we find it, right? And then we're willing to do whatever it takes to either get in that group or stay in the group. Sin alienates us from one another and then doubles down by leading us to sinfully try and escape the isolation, alienation, and loneliness by doing things that further isolate us from God and each other. That's why the Bible says, Sin is a master that we're enslaved to. In the middle of the fifth grade, we moved from Fayetteville, North Carolina, to Rocky Mount. We moved over at Christmas. You know, we went on Christmas break. And then after that, January 1990, started here uh, in Rocky Mount at Benvenu Elementary. And I remember the first day well. You know why I remember the first day well? I didn't know anybody. So the entire day, that's when my hair started turning gray. So it was the fifth grade. Went home, there's four gray hairs. Because you, you go to a classroom, you sit by somebody you don't know. And um, the good news is fifth grade kids tend to be the nicest kids on, in the world. No, no. 
They've already got their acceptance, and you're a threat to it, so it's just kind of, it's kind of a deal. It's like, uh, uh, I felt the pressure to begin to do some things so that I could make some friends, because nobody wants to sit in the cafeteria or the school bus by themselves, right? So I began to rely on not the best character trait that I have. I started kind of forming friendships on the basis of a sense of humor that I have that tends to be sarcastic and often finds an object for my sarcasm, which would be other people. Or to sit in the classroom and just sort of come up with witty retorts to the teacher. So I kind of go all through junior high school and high school. I'm not saying the class clown. I wasn't always disrupting, but my identity was... Brandon will come up with something funny to say. But what actually was happening is I was, I guess in a way, not in a godly way, having funny things to say. But your sense of humor can begin to operate in such a way that you stop seeing other people as living, breathing human beings with eternal souls and more of a source material for the next laugh that you want to get. And I was doing all of that on the basis of what? A desire for acceptance. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's what the Bible says. What was I really after? Man, I just want acceptance. Another uh, strong force that pulls us and we can be led into temptation is the desire for the moral high ground. In his book, Paul Tripp says, uh, there's a stark difference between true righteousness and prideful self-righteousness. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple alerts us to this. That's in Luke 18, right? One man went to the prayer, uh, went to the temple and kind of in arrogance said, God, I'm thankful I'm not like all these other people, right? And Paul Tripp says it always leads to a distorted self-assessment and a judgmental dismissal of others. Quote him a couple more sentences. A moral high ground spirit will not make you patient, kind, nurturing, understanding, or forgiving. forgiving. It won't make you listen well with grace. It will make you quicker to judge than you are to encourage. In other words, just wanting to be right. I stand on the moral high ground. So, So let's do a quick inventory together. Which has been more recent for you? That God seriously and deeply brought loving correction to your life or you thought to bring correction to somebody else's life? Which was more recent? Which is, happens more frequently? When's the last time you humbly or sincerely apologized to someone? Are you more sensitive to and aware of your sins or the sins of other people? Do you worry more about how your children reflect on you or how they reflect the heart of Christ? Do you think how your marriage would be better if your spouse would change or how you could change to make your marriage better? Do you approach church family thinking about how things would be better if so-and-so would change more than how you can build others up? There's a whole group of people, right? in the ministry of Jesus, who are always standing on the moral high ground. You know who they are, don't you? It's the Pharisees. Let's think about it together. 
you often see a Pharisee quoting scripture. And they know it backwards and forwards. But so does the devil apparently, right? It's not about knowing about scripture or being able to quote scripture. It's do you love the God of scripture? So you you often see them quoting scripture, but you never see them covering the sins of others. Stooping low to help somebody. You, You see Pharisees at all the religious services. I mean, there's not one feast that Jesus attends that Pharisees aren't there. And sometimes they're leading them. But do you ever see a Pharisee demonstrate patience? You often see Pharisees angry, but you never see a Pharisee weeping over their own sin or the sins of others. So the Pharisees had their traditions, their religious services, their scripture quoting, gave their Bible lessons, ridiculed the Roman government until they saw in that wicked government the opportunity for it to do their bidding. Then they were ready to cooperate with it to get Christ crucified. You'll often see the Pharisees grab the moral high ground, but you'll never see the Pharisees walk up Mount Calvary except to mock the one being crucified. In other words, you can be around the things of God a whole lot without ever having the Spirit of God bring transformation to your life from the inside out. They were led right into temptation and told everyone around them that they should follow them to know God. But they didn't know God themselves. It's the desire for the moral high ground. This goes pretty close to that, by the way, is the next one. It's the desire for control. Desire for control. <laughs> I see this come out every time uh, Julie and I are going to leave our house and, and going to leave the children. There's always the question, well, who's in charge, Right? I know I've told you this story before. We still got the voicemail from years ago when uh, Juliana was about three or four years old, and we left the house. And Julie, I mean, we, we usually don't get around the corner before the cell phone starts ringing, right? But I think Julie's cell phone was silent, so we didn't get the call, and we got a very brief voicemail on the, on the line. And it's from our house, so we know it's one of the children. And Julie puts it on speaker, and it's little Juliana's voice, and she goes, Is Abel in charge? So Julie just said, We'll just let it lie. We'll deal with it when we get home. We go about another half mile. Here comes the phone again. Another voicemail a couple minutes later. And now it's not a question. It's an accusation. Why is Abel in charge? And that's, what is it? What is it in here? What's, what's practically going on at the house? Maybe what are they going to watch? What are they going to eat? I mean, the practical things. But it's not about, is it going to be peanut butter and jelly or Cheerios? It's about who gets to call the shot. Who's in control? The question quickly becomes a criticism. We're just like that. We want to live as if we're in charge, but be blessed as if God was in charge. Isn't that in us? That's what we want. I'll do what I want to do, but God, you still kind of bless what I do. Who's that, whose name is being hallowed in that case? It's mine, right? Whose will is being done? It's, it's mine. God, God never, God never, ever, ever, ever blesses us at the expense of our holiness. Because there's no such thing as an unholy blessing. There's really not. He never blesses us to keep going our own way. The parable of the prodigal son is not that the father just kept sending more money so the son could stay in the far country. The parable of the prodigal was when he finally came to his senses, he said, what am I doing here? My father has more than enough. I'll go back and be treated as one of his hired servants. And it's when his son returns that the father covers him with grace and lavishes upon him 
restoration. I chose the word desire purposefully. It's the desire for these things. The desire for approval. The desire for attention. The desire for control. The desire for the moral high ground. How do you overcome a desire for something? Desire for lesser things are only overcome by desires for greater things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. The only way we'll consistently be led away from temptation is a heart change that only God can bring about. But friends, God can bring it about. That's why we ask him for it. Lead us, lead me out of this temptation. Lead me out of wasting my life in these dry dark places. When I was a little bit older, probably that age where you're probably a little too old to be going around door to door asking for candy on the, in, in October, but I did it anyway, you know, around 11, 12. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud because you're still wrestling with that. And that's, that, it, you know, we'll talk about it after the service, but got a bag full of candy but I was old enough to know I don't want to eat it all in one sitting, you know, because five, six, seven-year-old Brandon, we just took it all in one night. Because I'm a little bit older, a little bit wiser, so I took my big bag of candy, and I just put it under my bed. And I said, I'll just get a little every now and then. Well, I kind of got distracted and forgot that it was there. So about a month goes by. It must have been around Thanksgiving. And I pulled my bag of candy out, and I said, oh, or I found it cleaning up my room. And now this big bag of candy, ah, so excited. I unwrapped the first Reese cup. I've always been partial to the Reese cup. And pop it in my mouth. Mm. It was not good. It did not taste like a Reese cup. I said, what in the world is wrong? And so I dump out and there was a whole lot of that big pink bubble gum that was also in the bag. And I said, maybe that was just that Reese cup. I'm a slow learner. Five Reese cups later, all of them, all of them taste like pink bubble gum. And I can tell you there are few things more disappointing in life than popping a Reese cup in your mouth and tasting pink bubble gum. But what had happened was that kind of coexisted in that bag. And I don't know the science behind it. Somebody can describe it to me later. But the pink bubble gum became dominant. And everything in the bag now tasted like that. As a follower of Jesus, there should be something about your life. There should be something about your character, your words, your actions that is evident. There's a distinction between you and the world. What the world loves, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, they don't rule over you anymore. You're being delivered from them. It's pretty much the same point Jesus obviously makes earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if, but if salt has lost its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. Do you know what I did with that bag of candy? After the fifth, fifth Reese cup, I put it in the trash. Why? It doesn't have a taste like it's supposed to anymore. As a follower of Jesus, the Lord's prayer is demonstrating this is what it looks like. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You hallow his name. You long for his kingdom. You long for his will. 
You get daily bread and it's not, this is all I got. This, I can't believe I've got this. He's been good to me another day. And I want to be led out of temptation. You're rescued from this piddly sort of quasi-Christian reality that's in our culture right now where you just kind of come up as close as you can to temptation. And let me just see it for itself. And then I'll just kind of, no, you say, I don't want anything to do with it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I take up the cross, I deny myself, and I follow him. And friends, there is no way to follow Jesus without being led out of temptation. Because he's not going there. He's saying this is what you're actually rescued from, is the temptation and unto what? Not just I'm going to stop doing it. It's because I have something so much better now, namely Christ. And now your heart is transformed in such a way that it's a set on eternity. So here's the next point. A heart set on eternity resists evil today. So when you repent and believe in and follow Jesus, you can have something greater in your life than the desire for approval, the desire for acceptance, the desire for power, the desire for the moral high ground, and the desire for control. That, that, what none of those things ever gives to you. You ready for it? A heart set on eternity is a heart at rest. Heart at rest. So long as you desire approval, you will never have rest. Just be this little brief momentary blip, right? It's brief. And in order to continue having it, you got to continue doing stuff to get it. Do you know what I'm saying? Such a restless life. And to the extent that you desire control, you'll never have rest. And you'll spend all your life anxious and troubled about many things, as Jesus said to, to Martha. And by the way, Martha there in Luke chapter 10, she's not anti-Jesus. She's welcomed him into her house. But she says she's distracted with much serving. Mary's chosen the greater portion and it will not be taken. Can you just keep hearing the scripture? It will not be taken. All that's in the world is passing away. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. The heart set at rest. Rest of heart comes when you know that your eternity is secure. Are you there? Revelation 21. He said with a loud voice, Behold, my dwelling place is with you. All the former things, all the former things have passed away. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, in some measure, understand what I'm saying, you don't have to wait for then for those things to pass out of your life now. That's what I mean when I say a heart set on eternity resists evil today. It's not just then and there that all these things are going to seem shallow. It's right now. Amen? So your heart is not tossed and turned constantly by the most recent breaking news, the most recent response you got from people. It comes from knowing you are a part of an unshakable kingdom. And when your heart's at rest, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're no longer overly critical. You're, you're not frantically looking for acceptance and devastated when you don't get it. When your heart's at rest, you're full of gratitude, not irritability. You're full of empathy towards others, not suspicion all the time. You see, your, you see other people as your neighbor, not as, not as threats. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. So, so one, when your heart's now set, and isn't that what the Lord's Prayer is saying? Your kingdom come, your will be done. My heart's now set on him. 
And then second, last point for this morning is a heart set on eternity is a heart on mission. So let's not hear rest and think that means inactive. That's not what we're talking about at all. A clear example, the Apostle Paul. Was his heart at rest in the Lord? Yes. Was he inactive? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what rest does is it frees you up from the, in the endless race of approval, acceptance, control, moral high ground. You're freed up from that, and now you leverage your life for what does matter. Now, here's the good news. We have been invited into God's family. How amazing is that? But having been invited into his family, we're also made part of his mission in the world. We're called to display the glory of God in a world that is obsessed with lesser glories. We're called to live for God's truth in a world that is captured by falsehood. We're called to resist temptation in a world that is given over to its seductions. We are still in the world, yes, and it is sinking. But we don't go around saying, nothing to worry about here. No, we say, this is how you put on your life jacket, right? Because this world might be sinking, but a new one is coming. And even if those in positions of leadership themselves are telling you the boat's going to be fine, listen to God. Amen? So we leverage our lives, our resources, our time. Can we think about this for real for a moment? Like for real. Because I, I mean, I, I love pastoring and preaching, but I kind of know how it goes. Give a message and then that was done. And, but, but I'm talking about for real right now. What are you investing your time, your resources, your life for? Two options, building your own kingdom or being a part of God's kingdom. So we don't live for the furtherance of our little kingdoms, but we sacrifice and we give and we go to take the gospel to the nations. Maybe think about it this. This might be a silly way of thinking about it, but let's think about it this way. It's October, mid-October, so... Give me patience and grace to receive, receive this. Are you right now thinking more about maybe what you're going to get some people for Christmas over and above what you're thinking about how you're going to extend the gospel to those who've never heard? That's kind of what we're talking about. Like in real life, am I, am I taking my life, this little brief blip of a life I've got, now my heart is at rest, but my heart is on mission Joining Jesus. If I'm going to follow Jesus, this is the simplest thought, but we'll close with it. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I am going to go where he goes. It's going to lead me out of, of temptation. A day's coming when we will permanently, eternally be delivered from evil. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. May it happen today. But until that day, we're kind of heading in that direction. 
more and more delivered from the things that are a life lived for lesser glories. I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray together. We'll respond to the Lord together. Have a time of uh, invitation, a time of response. A great way that, it, that we could approach this time is, is there something in your life that needs to get adjusted, transformed, fixed? Oh, God can do it. He can do it. There's something in your life you need to be let out of. Maybe it's something you have wrestled with for years. But just hear afresh again. You don't have to stay there forever. God's willing to help you. You've got a church family that loves you. I'm going to follow him together. got a burden, a concern on your soul this morning, I'll stand here at the front. It'll be my joy to pray with you. Talk about how to follow Jesus, if that's something that God's leading you to do. Father, now, now we ask for help. You've already been so good to us in that your word is so accessible. It's right here in front of us. We can read it. We can think about it. We can talk about it. But, but what we need help with is, is bringing it to bear in a real way in our lives. Father, we see the Pharisees constantly around the things of God. But no real heart transformation that leads them to love God and love other people. Somehow the things of God became a form of loving themselves. Oh God, give us grace not to follow in their footsteps. Lead us. Deliver us. Help us. We look to you now together in Jesus' name. Amen.